Good to have you back on Trojan Talk. I'm Ryan Young, and we do have the normal podcast that you've gotten accustomed to, where I'm joined by Max Brown to recap the previous game and all the storylines. But right after we finished recording Monday, uh, USC got some big news. They got a commitment from four-star 2021 quarterback Jake Garcia. And so I brought in Rivals West Coast recruiting analyst Adam Gorney for a segment to talk about the impact of that commitment, how he projects Garcia fitting at USC, and just what it means for the Trojans' recruiting efforts, both in 2020 and 2021. So we're going to start with that, and then we'll get to the podcast with Max. And just bear in mind that when Max and I recorded, we were reacting to uh, Bryce Young's decommitment and flip to Alabama. We did not know what was going to come after that so quickly with Jake Garcia's prompt commitment. So you'll hear us kind of speculate that, that Bryce Young's situation could lead to a 2021 guy jumping on board quickly and locking in his spot. And sure enough, that's what happened. But uh, just factor that in as you listen to that segment that was recorded before uh, Jake Garcia's commitment. And the upcoming segment with Adam Gorney, we had a little bit of an audio issue, so it's a different quality than the rest of the podcast. But I, as always, his insight and perspective is so good, I wanted to include it on here. So so bear with that, and then we'll get into the full podcast after it. Uh, we had a great talk, Max and I did. A lot of fun recapping Matt Fink's big day and, and all that stuff from uh, the Utah game. With, with that, here is Adam Gorney. Adam, thanks for joining me, and uh, let's get right to it. Jake Garcia, four-star, 2021 quarterback from Narbonne High School, Wastes no time after Bryce Young's departure in the 2020 class and commits for 21. What's your your first reaction to, to that news? Yeah, that didn't take long, huh? Uh, <laughs> it's been a busy 24 hours for uh, quarterback commitments and decommitments at USC. Um, I think it's a very nice pickup. He is not of the you know prototypical air raid quarterback that you would think. You know, Bryce Young was a kid who would certainly be comfortable in the pocket but could get out and run and create and do all those kinds of things and Garcia's a little bit more of a pocket passer he's an athletic kid that can move but he just but feels much you know more comfortable sitting in the pocket and throwing the ball around so uh, that's not to say those guys can't uh, work the air raid offense perfectly fine they have over the years and I don't think that's a problem there's certainly no problem in terms of fit for USC's offense but a very big commitment one of the best quarterbacks in the 2021 class a really talented kid and also a kid who uh, you know knows a lot of people on the camp and seven on seven circuit scene so we'll definitely be recruiting for the Trojans over the next few years this is kind of what I expected, not this fast maybe, but I figured someone's going to pounce on this. Um, you, you always look at kind of the depth chart succession and what's in line, and, and Bryce Young's departure left a gaping hole there in the timeline for USC's quarterback picture, and it, it seemed unlikely the Trojans would recover and find a, a big-time 2020 guy at this juncture. It made sense to to leverage uh, the situation and try and turn – find the positive and say, okay, let's sell this to the 2021 guys, and they do. Um, Jake has has been really highly coveted. I I know that LSU's been on him, Miami's been on him. What puts him in that upper echelon of those 2021 guys? Yeah, he seemed to be a kid who really loved Miami. He had been down there a few times, kind of like the swagger of the Miami program coming back. I think the start to this 
concerning to him. The offense certainly does not look uh, as high-powered as expected. Um, LSU was a school that I thought had a real chance for him, and especially how they're playing this season. Um, Joe Burrow looks like a million bucks in that offense. They're finally throwing it around, and there might not be a better school um, in terms of being able to recruit receivers, especially now. Um, you know, if you go down the line, Justin Jefferson, Terrace Marshall, uh, Jamar Chase, all those guys that they're getting, uh, they're delivering the ball to them. So I thought LSU was going to play a real factor here. His father played at Nebraska, um, but I never really got the sense that he was all that interested in going there. Um, so I think this is a very big pickup. Um, I don't know if they're going to go after two in 2021, how they're looking at the 2020 board right now in terms of getting someone. It's pretty late, and, and a lot of guys are committed elsewhere. And, um, you know, we've talked before about, you know, Slovis and Daniels now having three years. So I think that might kind of alter how 2020 quarterbacks think of this whole thing. And so I think getting Garcia in 21 is very important, not only because you solidify a quarterback, but because he can go out and start recruiting for that class. Yeah, and we have him ranked the number five pro-style QB, the number 24 overall prospect in that 2021 class. And he was one of four guys that USC kind of honed in on. Uh, there was Miller Moss from Bishop Alamany. There was uh, Preston Stone from Dallas, Texas, and Baron Morton from Eastland, Texas. And I was kind of curious to see which one would make the first move. And Garcia was on campus at USC this summer. He was back in the Coliseum for the Stanford game earlier this season. I went out and talked to him right before that game, and, and he made it clear that he had a really good connection with Graham Harrell. And he said, you know, he always wanted USC in the mix, but once they brought in Harrell in this offense, it really piqued his interest. It really got him uh, communicating a lot more with the staff there. And, and he felt that the offense was very similar to what he runs at Narbonne. But when I saw him, I, I saw them do a lot of short, quick game passes to the sidelines to get their playmakers in space and to do, do stuff after the catch and, and use that to set up plays downfield. What have you seen from him over his time as a starting quarterback there, and, and how, how do you think it relates to what USC is doing now? Yeah, I think it's going to be a very nice fit. He is a kid who can throw the deep ball with accuracy, um, but you know can easily run an offense, and he feels comfortable. He's seen, he knows how USC's offense is going to run and work. Um, I think he likes that they're going to be able to recruit skill players. Um, you know, if you watch him on Ross St. Brown, Michael Pittman, Tyler Vaughn's out there. They have guys that can that can make plays, and that's what any quarterback is going to want. So he's going to be able to sit in the pocket, deliver the ball short, and let people run. He's going to be able to deliver across the middle and deep. He plays and just kind of has an air of confidence about him that I think really fits in with what USC quarterbacks have looked like in the past. Um, and making the decision now, and everyone knows that, you know, there's obviously hot seat questions and will Graham Harrell even be there in two years um, is, is an interesting discussion to have. Um, and this is obviously just a commitment, but making it, um, you know, I thought Miller Moss was very high on USC for a long time and it's going to see, it's going to be interesting to see um, how this kind of dominoes his recruitment. The two Texas kids I thought probably were an outside shot to begin with. So, sure. you know, staying local and getting a kid um, with the talent of Garcia is, is definitely very big. Well, if you look at it from Garcia's standpoint, you, you want to jump on that commitment. If, if, if 
USC is truly near the top of your list, and this uh, domino effect just happens with Bryce Young, you want to be that first guy to, to commit before a Miller Moss or someone else, because that that kind of locks you into that spot. I, I don't know what USC's priority ranking was there. I think this probably tells us that they were they had uh, Jake Garcia near the top of that list. Yeah, I, I would imagine it was kind of 1A and 1B. I think both are very talented kids. I think both are going to play at big-time programs. So, I, um, you know, I, I don't know, obviously, but I would, I would imagine it was sort of we'll take the first one that commits. Both are very, very high on our board. And it was interesting to see after Garcia committed, Miller Moss commented on him and congratulated him, which is no surprise because he's a real class act. Yeah. But, um, you know, it does put his recruitment, obviously, USC was in his top seven. I don't know if that makes it a top six or if they're willing to kind of play. I remember a few years ago, Cody Kessler and Max Wittick committed in the same class, and obviously only one can play. And so that has kind of died down a little bit across college football. Um, everybody kind of wants to be the first guy in the class, and then others look elsewhere to play with talented kids. Um, this will be interesting to see what happens to Miller Moss. But I would imagine USC's board was will take Garcia or Moss at any point when they want to come in. Yeah, you hit on a good point there, and part of the instant reaction to the Bryce Young news was everyone being up in arms that, oh, well, well USC stopped recruiting uh, other quarterbacks after he committed and, and told them that he, that he was their guy. To me, that's kind of the way it works these days. You, you, you don't land two of the top guys in the same class. I, I went over and looked at our top 60 guys in the 2020 class, and only three schools have two quarterbacks committed, and none of them include anyone ranked anywhere near as high as Bryce Young was. So, that's yeah. that, that, is that just the way of business? Am I am I viewing that correctly? Sure. I, I don't think Clemson is going out and trying to look for a second quarterback in this class because it would turn off DJ. You know, if someone of Bryce Young's talent, I don't think you go out and even kind of test that market uh, in the hopes that he is. You know, convinced and stays with you now when he decommits and goes to Alabama. It hurts you. I mean, it's definitely a big loss. Um, and 2020 is a little uncertain now. I know that USC has reached out to DJ. It seems like there's no to mild interest there. Um, you know, CJ Stroud, I think, could be a very good option if they continue uh, to go after him. I like him very, very much. Um, but, you know, lose, there's one Bryce Young in this class, and you're not going to try to go and recruit over him for a second quarterback just for depth purposes. So, um, you know, I think that's kind of how it is. That's how what I've noticed anyway. You know, uh, quarterbacks are not afraid to make early commitments to the school that they love, um, but they kind of want to know that they're that guy in that class and they're not going to have to compete with somebody else because, you know, only one can be on the field. Yeah, and just for how it shapes up with USC's depth chart, if everyone comes back next year, they they don't have an immediate need for an impact guy in the 2020 class. I think you want that depth. You'd like to have four scholarship quarterbacks. And the interesting thing to see now will be, does Matt Fink's big game last week make him again enter the portal as a grad transfer and go, I have more to show people this offseason. I've proven I can do it. Now maybe I can land somewhere and have a real opportunity to be a starter for a full year. So, so maybe he's not a sure thing as, as the number three guy coming back next year with Daniels yeah. and Slovis. And if that's the case, then, then you got to bring somebody in. Even if it's a grad transfer, a Juca, you, you just got to have a body. You, you can't just have two scholarship quarterbacks. So that, that, that's, that's the one area where I'm concerned about the numbers. 
Um, if all three of those guys come back, I'm not as concerned. But in terms of a succession plan, they have their starter for the foreseeable future, whether it's Slovis or Daniels. And locking in a, a high upside 2021 guy, I think, really takes some of the sting off of what happened last night. Yeah, there's no, there's no doubt in my mind that it's one of the more intriguing Pac-12 storylines going into next season, especially if Slovis comes back and plays really well. Uh, you know, what do you do then? Um, it's going to be very interesting to see kind of how Daniels recovers physically when he's able to go. Um, if he's able to go through the spring, if, if Slovis continues to play well, what do you do with him if Daniels comes back? If Fink continues to play well, what do you do with him when Slovis comes back? And so, you know, there's always kind of this maxim in recruiting that, oh, do they have the numbers for this 25-person uh, class or 22-person class? And, and, and at the end of the day, it always works out that they find, you know, ways to get guys in classes. And now with grad transfers and the transfer portal, um, I'm, I'm pretty certain USC is going to be able to find some quarterback depth if needed. Um, if not going after a 2020 quarterback. So it will certainly be interesting. Um, you know, Matt Fink was obviously rumored to be in the transfer situation, decided to come back. Credit to him. Uh, a lot of guys leave and never play. Um, you know, Tate Martell was a kid that was at Ohio State. And, you know, who knows what the situation would be right now um, if he stayed there. And now he's moved to wide receiver at Miami. And so, yeah. you know, you know, Matt Fink is... Uh, uh, an, an interesting one. Uh, he could certainly leave and, and, and play somewhere. He's a talented enough kid as he's shown. Um, but, but it's a very interesting storyline because you would imagine Daniels, uh, you know, would, would retain the starting job. But if Slovis continues to look so good, it uh, it will be an interesting uh, situation going into next season. Definitely. Well, just two last points. Uh, I think another uh, positive side effect of. Garcia's commitment is that one of his top playmakers right now at Narbonne is Joshua Jackson, USC's yeah. only 2020 wide receiver commit so far. And we talked just between us after Bryce Young's uh, decommitment in football to Alabama that that could have uh, some bearing on their pursuit for the other top wideouts in this 2020 class, the Gary Bryant, CLB Bunkley Sheltons. And I also wondered about keeping Josh Jackson and, and how he would perceive this. Because they only have two four-star commits right now, and they only have one wide receiver. And, and he, yeah. he checks both those boxes. Now his high school quarterback is pledged to USC. I would think that would uh, lend favorably to him sticking by his pledge himself. Yeah, not only him, but you know, Gary Bryant knows Jake Garcia very well. L.D. Bunkley Shelton knows Jake Garcia very well. This is not um, a quarterback commitment from out of state um, that they have to kind of look up on YouTube or Huddle and kind of get a, a sense for. No, I mean, I I see these guys every weekend at seven on seven, and L.D. knows Jake Garcia, you know, incredibly well. I I think that's going to be no problem in terms of relationship or familiarity when Gary Bryant is looking at schools that down the road Jake Garcia could be his quarterback um, after JT Daniels or Keith Slovis uh, leave the program. So I, I think it's uh, a very nice pickup. Narbonne is a school that continues to have uh, a lot of talent there. Um, throughout the years, those guys have gone to USC and, you know, you, know, you can blame me for this. Some have been underranked. And Shannon Owosu was, was one of them. Um, but Narbonne has a lot of talented kids. 
school. They want to go play at USC, and I think taking their quarterback this early uh, definitely helps that cause for the you know 2021s and 2022s down the line. Well, let's close with this. Uh, we, we've kind of extolled uh, Jake Garcia's virtues. What's the one area you think he has to grow the most in uh, over this next year and a half or so before he gets to campus? Yeah, you know what? You know what I've noticed from him, um, and it, uh, it, it's you know slightly a concern. Um, you know, the, the, the high school transfers uh, moving around a little bit is something uh, that that definitely needs to be watched uh, in terms of his level of commitment to a program and finding the right fit. Um, but just, you know, the ability to get on the field and play in actual games. I've seen him in camp settings look very, very good, very talented kid, seven on seven. But there's something to be said about also playing Friday nights and looking really, really good uh, with pads on. And, you know, really, honestly, something more than just to be said, it's probably the most important thing that you do during an evaluation. So I think just him settling into a program and him, uh, you know, really delivering on Friday nights with a really, really talented team. And, and he's done that so far this season. Um, but just that consistency over the next two years is going to be important. Good stuff. As always, Adam, thanks for joining us. Of course, Ryan. Okay, now let's bring in Max Brown, our weekly co-host, the former USC quarterback, the now Trojans analyst, our Trojansports.com analyst for the fall. Without further ado. And we have a lot to analyze. But first, we have something to acknowledge. Uh, hopefully, no one has been taking our predictions and betting on them in the last couple of weeks. Yeah. We've, been very, we've been very off. Yeah. And that's okay. I was, I was happy to, to be wrong last week, for sure. I mean, I'm very happy to be wrong and have a fun game to cover. Um, also, though, I, I got I to own it. I, uh, I thought maybe Clay's comments last week before the game were a little too bold about comparing this to 2016 and uh, when USC obviously won nine straight games after a slow start and I just thought it was premature. Well, he went out and backed it up with a really impressive win with his third string quarterback and we have a lot to talk about about all that but we have to get into some news and, and Max, you made the point I think it was a couple of weeks ago after the Stanford game that Whenever things are riding high, there's always something right right around the corner, it seems. Um, it was the Lynn Swan resignation after Stanford, and then now two days three days after two days after USC beats number ten Utah. Bryce Young, the uh, the jewel of their twenty twenty recruiting class, a four star quarterback from Modern Day, goes to Alabama this weekend for official visit, uh, decommits from USC, commits to the Crimson Tide. And that's really all anyone's talking about right now. It's kind of uh, overshadowed the afterglow of the win, unfortunately. So we will have to – we'll get into that off at the top here, and then we'll get into the game and have a lot of fun stuff to talk about. But, uh, Max, let me just get some general reaction from you. And I want to kind of get tap into your experience as, as a former top recruit. What, were you surprised that, that Bryce Young chose now to kind of hop off board and switch to the tide? I was not. Um, and I'm not – like like you got to touch on, I'm not like – crazy plugged into the recruiting world but obviously I know yeah. I know Bryce Young and I, I know kind of the dynamics there and obviously talking to, to people like yourself and other people that are plugged in um, obviously knew he was a big deal or big big guy big recruit I think to me I had heard uh, 
kind of like rumors or for, for lack of a better term that he might have been uh, looking around. So I don't think this is a surprise necessarily. I think it's a bummer for SC fans. But then when you step back, it's like, this, to me, it's almost like this was bound to happen. I mean, you talk about SC played two true freshman quarterbacks in a row, and who knows what the 2020 outlook looks like for, for, for the USC quarterback um, position, not necessarily just the recruiting class, but the position in, in general. But if you're a betting man, you'd probably like to think that right now it's, it's probably Keaton Slovis. At least if I, if I was a betting man and had to put my money somewhere, I would, I would put my money on Keaton Interesting. Slovis. Interesting. Yeah, i put my money on Keaton Slovis. And so... If you're Bryce Young and you're a big recruit, and um, I mean, just like when when I was in that position, you don't you don't want to you don't want to sit long. Like you only got so much time there, and so it kind of makes sense that he look around. Uh, and then I think just the JT element even adds on to that, just because JT is a young quarterback too. And then now with him redshirting, he's going to be a sophomore next year again. Like uh, I think it made sense. I had heard rumors that he was looking around even before Keaton had. Uh, had 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 his had his success so um yeah it's interesting i think if you're bryce young you're probably looking at this i mean who knows what happens with the the new athletic director and clay and whatnot but obviously if clay keeps uh putting together big wins like uh, like we saw against utah he's not going anywhere and then i think you look at graham harrell's offense that's got to be enticing for any quarterback so when you kind of look at the pros and cons, that's one surprising element in terms of your Bryce Young. You got to be licking your chops with this offense. So, big picture, not surprised. Totally understand it. Uh, I think sure it's a loss in the in the short term for for, for SC recruiting wise, but I mean we both know how big of a hotbed Southern California is quarterback wise. And um, the, oh, the other point I'd like to hit on is. Um, Obviously, my, my career didn't necessarily work out at SC, but it, at that time, when I was the big five-star uh, quarterback recruit in the 2013 class, it was kind of inevitable that in the 2014 class, the next year, you just weren't going to get a, a big recruit just because kind of the, the order of the ranking. I remember that year we got Jalen Green, who, great kid, great football player, but he ended up switching positions. And then it allows you for a guy the next year, like the 2015 class, to pick up a Sam Darnold, to pick up a Ricky Town, both guys that were highly recruited because in the pitch for the next class, a la the 2021 recruiting class, is, hey, we have a void here. Keaton Slovis might leave early for the draft or JT Daniels might leave early for the draft and then your pitch changes. So by no means do I think this is the end of the world and I totally understand all dynamics at play. Great points. I want to get in further to your experience, but let me just, for those that – that also aren't deep into the recruiting woods and, and don't know the full backstory here. So Bryce Young committed to USC in July of 2018. So he had been on board for over a year. And at that point, they made a decision to go all in on him and did not recruit uh, DJ from St. John Bosco. Uh, again, another last name I always mispronounce, DJ Uegalele. Anyways, uh, number one pro-style quarterback in the country, committed to Clemson. USC made a decision. They had Bryce Young ready to commit. They took it, and they went all in and didn't recruit any other top quarterbacks. And that's the way this works. And people are overreacting, I think, to, to whatever promise they made to Bryce Young's family that they wouldn't recruit anyone else because he committed. It, it doesn't even have to be explicit. They don't have to make a promise. You're not going to get two of the top five quarterbacks in the country in the same class. I mean, it's, it's very rare, a major outlier that ever happens. So there's nothing controversial in what they did in their approach uh, and going all in on him. It's unfortunate that he's changed his mind now. And the way this played out, 
we, we started hearing the Alabama buzz in the summer. And I, uh, I was out at the, where was I? I was at, out at the Elite 11 and uh, the opening finals in, in Dallas. And I talked to Bryce Young about it then. And every time he, he said, you know, I'm just uh, I'm respectful to anyone who calls. I don't want to burn any bridges, but I'm, I'm, I'm happily committed. I got the sense he was conflicted. It was tough. I mean, you have Nick Saban in Alabama making you a priority, coming hard after you. The program that's won half of the last 10 national championships is saying, you are our guy. We want you. And as much as you, you love USC, you grew up rooting for them, you're still, they're coming off a 5-7 and seven season. Every week seems to be uh, Clay Helton is, is the storyline and, and his future. So I get it. But, but that was kind of the backdrop to this. And as of a few weeks ago, uh, Bryce and his family still did not have an Alabama visit set up. Uh, they were still on the fence about whether or not they wanted to really consider doing that. And Modern Day had their bye week this week, and if they were going to do it, it was going to. They wanted to do it where it didn't disrupt the high school season, and so they had a lot of family talks. I, I talked to Bryce Young's father uh, for a while this morning, so I'm kind of relaying their perspective on things. They had a lot of talks about it. They decided that at this point they couldn't not take a hard look at Alabama again, given how special or unique an opportunity it is, as uh, Craig Young said. So Bryce called Clay Helton and Graham Harrell last week and silently decommitted. So they knew ahead of time that he was no longer a committed prospect. He goes to Alabama, he commits on Sunday, and I, I think it's probably a done deal. I don't think it matters what SC does the rest of the way here. Bottom line is Nick Saban and that staff said, you're our guy, and they didn't stop, and they went and got him. And they have the infrastructure and the stability and the stature and the clout right now to go and do that. And, and SC is just not in that position. Yeah. No, I, and I can personally relate to the power of when a, when a Nick, Nick Saban kind of calls you and the, and the power that that brings when, uh, when the Alabama Crimson Tide wants you. you got to give them a heavy look. But I think the point you – you highlighted was just any time a guy's entertaining calls I mean that 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 just shows you kind of like he's he's really not like fully fully committed because I know even when I was recruit like for me like when I committed SC like there was no other talking there you weren't talking to other schools like other quarterbacks you're kind of maybe halfway in halfway out you're technically committed but still kind of open anytime that's the case uh I don't really buy the whole uh he's actually committed so um, to me, I, I really don't think – I mean, great player, sure, but uh, I think just all signs kind of pointed in this direction just because of kind of the uneasiness of kind of where the SC program is right now and just the stacked depth of the quarterback position. This, this, uh, this decision makes sense. Yeah, so, so let's, let's lean on your experience here. You were the, the number one pro-style quarterback in the country in 2013, number seven overall recruit. Uh, Bryce is like number – I forget what his overall number is, but he's not even that high. So you really had the spotlight fully on you. What was it like after you committed? How often were schools coming at you, and how did you handle it? You kind of hinted at it, but I'd like to go deeper into how you really rebuffed any overtures or dealt with that. Totally, yeah. I, I never, like you said, I mean, I was, I was highly recruited, but I never really like kind of bought into the whole recruiting buzz, and I think every school that talked to me kind of kind of noted that. Like it wasn't like I needed to be – toured around and and coaches kissing up to me like no I was pretty like kind of straightforward with it and so when I committed to SC pretty much that was it 
Um, I think my hometown school, Washington, like circled back a couple times, uh, just like kind of checking in throughout throughout that year. So I committed like uh, it was April of my junior year of high school. And then so then I would have enrolled at SC about eight months later. Um, but yeah, it was pretty much I, once I committed, that was a done deal. There was no taking calls just to be nice and keeping options open. It was no. I, when I committed to SC, I was I was all in, and then when I committed, SC was the number one team in the country, preseason ranking, Matt Barkley, Robert Woods, that whole deal, and then at the end of the season, that was this seven and six season, and to me, the recruiting pitch changed, right? It went from, we're a national championship contender, actually, I shouldn't say that, just the vibe changed. The pitch was the same in that you're going to come in here, you're going to get a shot to start right away and compete right away, which I did, ended up obviously losing that job to Cody Kessler, but... Uh, that was the pitch, but then when they go from number one team in the country to seven and six, the vibe turns from, all right, come join this beast powerhouse program to, hey, come uh, re-energize this program and bring us back to yeah. the promised land kind of thing. So that dynamic changes, but um, yeah, once I committed, I, I, that, that, that closed up shop. That's the part I'm curious about. You know, this is, you're, you're choosing your future. Everything uh, hinges on this decision you're making. And when when things like the program uh, having a drop off happens and you're you're not signed yet, how do you not uh, you know have those second guesses or or those or, or, or wonder is this definitely the right call? How, how did you stay so so solid on that? Yeah, it's funny because when you ask that, I kind of sit here and think like, man, maybe I should have been uh, kind of <laughs> really like out there like kind of looking around. But I guess. Um, I really took wholeheartedly to that 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 kind of pitch I laid out in terms of you're going to come in here and reinvent like reinvigorate this program like you're going to bring us SC back that kind of thing like I always kind of felt like yeah I can do that like yeah that's kind of like what I'm what I'm ready to yeah. do kind of thing um, and I guess at the time there was like the whole sanctions deal so I guess you kind of convince yourself that there's better days ahead because that seven and six season happened when like it was on the kind of the right right there in the sanctions but I think there's also the element of I did not commit to SC strictly for football reasons I made sure I kind of did sure. my homework in terms of no I really liked the fact of going to school there I really liked the idea of playing for a powerhouse program I really liked the idea of um, kind of they didn't take a quarterback in the grade above me and there was a great favorable depth chart scenario like some of those things the, the school the degree like while some other guys might kind of say it as lip service, I truly meant it. And so um, when I was committed, I was committed. And I think, check that, not to get long-winded, but um, just kind of how I'm wired. Like when I committed, like that's my word. And the idea of like not, um, not backing out was just kind of like in my blood kind of thing. And I think there was an element of that when I like transferred four or five years later of like I never wanted to be a transfer guy. Like I wanted to see it through. So that was really painful on the back end. Um, but yeah, all those factors came into play and would never change it again. But that's definitely like the mental thought process of it all. Yeah, and, and, and that's that's the part where people are, are getting frustrated with this uh, in that, you know, again, Bryce made that commitment and USC had gone all in on him and put all their eggs in that basket. But he committed to a team that was coming off two great seasons under Clay Helton, at least, you know, win-loss record-wise. And that was before the 5-7. and seven. So he committed to a different program. And a lot has changed since then. And he stuck through it uh, after the 5-7, and seven, uh, was looking at where things went. And then Alabama just made this strong 
push really in, in recent months and, and decided to prioritize him. And that's kind of what changed here. And I, I touched on this in my initial rant, uh, for lack of a better term, but we had a great discussion on, on the message board today on Trojan Talk, trojansports.com, where people were asking why I didn't make a bigger deal of uh, when I talked to his father about this promise that USC made to them about not recruiting anybody else. And I said, look around the country. Look at the top 60 quarterbacks in this 2020 class. Only three schools have two quarterbacks committed, and none of them have a Bryce Young. They either have a four-star guy and more of a project, or they have two mid-tier four-star guys who are ranked like 100 spots below Bryce. You don't get two of the uh, elite gems in a class in the same class. It doesn't matter what you promise or don't promise, because if Bryce Young's committed, DJ from St. John Bosco is not going to commit at the same time. He can go to Clemson and have a clearer path, or vice versa. If they had gone all in on DJ, then you're not going to keep recruiting Bryce Young. It's just the way it works. And now USC's in a tough spot because there are only, according to the rivals' rankings, there are only four four-star prospects who are uncommitted at this time. Maybe USC tries to flip somebody. Maybe they just leave it alone and focus on 2021. But it's it, it's a big blow to an already um, – I, I don't want to use too strong of an adjective here because I think there's some good players in this class. But overall, USC was ranked 52nd in the recruiting rankings with Bryce. They fall to 63rd now. And this is a program that had never finished worse – in the rivals era since 2002 than it did last year when it was 19th. And people were up in arms about a number 19 recruiting class. Now they're at 63. They have only two four-star prospects, only one rivals top 250 guy, Josh Jackson. And the problem in losing Bryce is that he was the anchor in the face of that class. And he was their best sales pitch in going after four-star receivers Gary Bryant and L.B. Bunkley Shelton and those guys who know Bryce and and that would have been a – an intriguing pitch for them to come play with him. Absent of him now, it's a harder sell with those guys. So that's that's the big ramification. It's not just losing Bryce, but losing what he meant to this class. That said, and I know I'm getting long-winded here myself, looking at the overall picture, you mentioned it. They have JT Daniels, who is now uh, resetting with three years of eligibility left. They have Keaton Slovis, who's already impressed and has three years left. They have Matt Fink back next year. They have a good depth chart for next season. They don't necessarily need someone to come in. You'd like to have a guy so you have four scholarship QBs. because we've, we've already seen how quickly you can go through things. But I think they're okay next year. And what this will do, I think it will spark one of these 2021 prospects to make a quicker decision than maybe they expected and, and commit to USC, seeing what you talked about. There's not a guy in the class ahead of me. There's a, a decent succession plan, and I can see how I fit in. I think that's... USC's best move is to leverage leverage it in a positive way and say, look, you're our guy in 2021. We don't have a stud in 2020. Hop on board now and be the face of that class for us. Yeah, a bunch of things stick out to me. I think one, if anything for the past four weeks have shown us anything, it's that Keaton Slovis, an underrated guy, came in here and absolutely thrives in this offense. So maybe Graham's got another guy that he's uh, – I mean, it doesn't necessarily have to be a huge, huge recruit to, to come in your after sex. Obviously, you'd, uh, you'd want a Bryce Young to come in there, but it doesn't necessarily have to be it. And I think if I'm an SC fan, maybe, it, it, like, I think just the, your, your, your last point of it sets up SC great for 2021 is spot on in that 
I mean, maybe it's it's better suited that you get kind of a more uh, maybe a more consistent recruit or just a more uh, just a stable recruit here in this upcoming class. And then 2021 really set your eyes on a big recruit that you may not have gotten otherwise if Bryce Young Bryce Young had come aboard. So um, yeah, I don't think it's huge huge cause for panic. I think like you said, SC's depth chart spot on and. Uh, at the end of the day, if SC can win the next couple months and win ball games, they'll be able to make a case in anyone's living room throughout the country to try to flip them, and any West Coast prospect will be uh, perking their ears up a little bit and listening to, to, to Clay Helton's pitch. So winning ball games moving forward, that's their biggest thing they can do. Yeah, for sure. And it, it, it's interesting, Keaton Slovis was supposed to be that guy, that that safe guy who's not going to transfer after a year if he's not playing. He, yeah. he was kind of that, that gap filler recruit, and they just got a lot more than they bargained for in, in a great way. Um, so when they had JT in the 18 class and they had Bryce committed in the 20 class, it was a really hard sell to get a top four-star, five-star guy in that 2019 class, and they didn't. They, they were trying to take two QBs initially, and they, they couldn't do that either. And that they ended up with just Keaton Slovis, uh, who've talked a lot about you know him being over – uh, overlooked, underrated prospect, but he he ended up being a lot more than they bargained for. So now you roll it over and you say, okay, well we got studs in eighteen and nineteen. Maybe we don't have one in twenty, but now twenty one sets up. One last point I want to make on Bryce, just because I we have a full story up on Trojansports.com with uh, all his father's comments, kind of taking us inside how this unfolded over the last few months and really the last week. And, and at least their perspective on things. I, I know it's, it's only one side of the story, and everyone uh, has been quick to, to say, well, he didn't want to compete here. Yeah, I don't know what the true story is. I don't know how much of a factor the, the depth chart was, but it, it was the most emphatic point that Craig Young wanted to make is that the depth chart did not play a decision in him leaving his USC commitment. He, he goes, you don't go to Alabama if you, if you don't want to compete. We weren't afraid of, of JT and Keaton and Fank and the depth chart. We were ready to come in and compete. That's I, I believe that's probably the mindset. That said, Alabama is going to lose to attack of Aloha after this season, most likely. You assume he's entering the draft. They don't have an obvious successor lined up. They have Mac, Mac Jones, is it, and, uh, and then two his brother. Neither one is anointed as, as the next guy in succession. So Bryce does have a great – uh, spot to slide in there, and I'm sure that was a factor. And it can work both ways. I, I don't think that he was running for the hills because of USC's depth chart and, and just going to try and find anywhere else to go, but I also think that Alabama's depth chart was definitely a factor because it, it sets up really well for him to go in there, and it's Alabama. I mean, if, if, it, if that was Ole Miss, he's not making that move because they have a clear spot on the depth chart. It's Alabama, and they made him a priority. They got him. It is what it is. It's it's a bummer for USC because he's a really fun player to watch. I was really excited about what he was going to do here in this offense. But you got to regroup and move on. And we're going to move on. And we're going to stay in the same kind of vein, though. And we're going to talk more about QB depth, which we just hit on. But it has been the storyline of the season so far, Max. We, we started with JT Daniels. We had Keaton Slovis, the Pac-12 Offensive Player of the Week, Week 2. And then we had the Matt Fink story against Utah on Friday night. Matt Fink, as everyone knows, had a dalliance in the transfer portal after spring ball for a couple months, was almost headed to Illinois, comes back to USC with no promises, 
Uh, honestly surprises many by beating out Jack Sears for the number three job. But he's the third-string quarterback. You don't think that he's going to be, be a pivotal factor in one of the biggest games of the season. And yet that's what happens Friday night. Keaton Slovis knocked out after two plays. Matt Fink comes in, 351 yards passing, three touchdowns, one sack. Max, tell me about your boy Fink. Matt Fink, man, I'm so happy for him. I think uh, when you step back, like really really think about kind of like mentally what the last four years have been like for him. He obviously redshirted my last year there when uh, Sam and I were there, sat behind Sam for another year. And then you talk about the praised recruit JT Daniels coming in and, and battling for him and Basically, that whole year when JT was like still in high school, it was almost like people talked about it like it was a foregone conclusion that he was going to win the job. And so imagine if you're Matt yeah. Fink, you're sitting there like, screw this, like, what the heck? I'm the older guy, getting no respect, no one talking about him, all that kind of, all that just stuff. And then sure enough, JT comes in there, wins the job. Uh, JT gets hurt that first year. Matt gets in there. He's probably thinking, oh, this is my one shot. Then Matt gets hurt. And so then he's like, ah, shucks there dabbles with the transfer port like goes through a spring ball competition once again uh dabbles with the transfer portal at that time he's probably feeling the heat from a young true freshman and keaton slovis from behind him all the while you have fan a huge population of the fans asking for jack sears oh and it's the returning starter with 12 starts and jt daniels so basically he's the last name listed on any of these uh on any like qb report kind of thing in terms yes. of just uh intrigue and then uh, he goes there, and then um, this past fall, obviously, he felt like he should have been the st- named the starter or at least not been named third string, at least beat out the, 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 the true freshman for a backup, so then he's one hit away. That doesn't work out. And so the point I'm trying to get is imagine that mental whirlwind, and I can relate to that, but in terms of just uh, – I mean, obviously, every situation is different, but it is, it is hard to stay mentally engaged and – the, the the average fan might just say, oh well, yeah, he's got another year. Like ah, oh, like just it's football, it's fun, like or whatever. But that's not real life, especially when it, this is his one opportunity. So the fact that he went in there, no flinch whatsoever, like deep balls from the start. Like I'm so happy for him because um, it's just it, it's tough, and I, I think. Uh, it's a testament to kind of how he approached, and uh, I think it's also a testament to this offense and just how they got all three of those guys ready and how this offense is definitely conducive to quarterback success, but happy for Matt Fink, uh, no doubt. It, as I tweeted out a few times during that game, it was just it's one of those nights that makes college football special, just, just, just the unknown, the unexpected. Uh, this guy kind of rising up that no one thought would be in this position, and, and stealing the spotlight. And, and Clay Helton made a big point afterward to say, this is a great story. People need to, need to look at Matt Fink's story and see what he did and see his perseverance and his persistence and that he wanted to come back knowing that he might not ever get to the, the spot he thought he should be at in this program. And, and Clay talked about you know that whole transfer portal process and why he left the door open. They said it's because this guy did everything for this program. His attitude every day in practice. He he went in and, and broke ribs in, in his one appearance last year. He just gave it all. I I want to get your opinion on this because, like you said, you overlap with him briefly. I, I know it's different when you're a younger guy versus an older guy. I'm sure he's changed. But what did you see about see from Matt Fink personality wise and the way he approached? things that that one year you had together yeah I think uh 
Matt was definitely a kid that like put in the work, put in the work needed to needed to uh, like have success. I think. To, uh, but the reason probably he stuck around is I think Matt was like a big SC guy. I mean, I think uh, yeah. I mean, a, a fan growing up, and I remember when he, when he got on board, like um, that. Necess- I mean, that was similar to Sam as well. That wasn't necessarily me, like just being uh, being a Seattle kid. But I think to an extent, like that he was living out a dream, and so the idea of like staying to to, to roll the dice for a redshirt junior year made sense. But. Uh, yeah, I think Matt. Matt's a guy. He's uh, a little feisty. I mean, fiery. I think anyone that's followed the program kind of, kind of can, can can probably sense that. Um, obviously, he has the, the dual threat capabilities, but a good dude. I mean, that quarterback room in 2016 was a great time. It was fun, kind of being the older guy at the time to a, to a younger Matt Fink. But did everything he needed to do. I think uh, he did a good job of. He never was pressing. I think he knew kind of his time frame. And I remember when he redshirted, like he did a good job of always having fun with it, never getting too hard on himself, knowing that, hey, it was going to take a couple years for him to develop. And it's awesome to see kind of the, de- the the quarterback he's he's truly developed into. And, I mean, he deserves uh, de- deserves all the credit. And st- stuck it out. Um, but I think he stuck it out for the right reasons. He believed in himself, in himself and he believed that he could uh, make an impact. And that's what he did last week. It's it's a great lesson, like Clay said, for a guy that believed in himself maybe more than than anyone else believed in him, and he had that internal belief and stuck with it. Um, I was in the camp that was surprised that he was slotted above Jack Sears, and as we've talked about, I'm, it's not surprised that Keaton Slovis was above both of them. Uh, um, I had many arguments with the Sears Mafia here on the message board. But I, I, I do, I, I did think that, you know, if we're just raw talent wise, I thought Sears was the better quarterback. But what I, th- I think Matt Fink has done and did to w- to win over the coaches was the passion and energy he brings every day to practice. You said he, you mentioned he's a fiery guy, and I know that's uh, intangibles and it's not the most important thing maybe, but that's the thing that Graham Harrell prioritizes. How many times have we heard already this season? him telling the quarterbacks the most excited guy wins. That's what he wants from that position. That was his challenge to JT Daniels, is to be more excitable, be more fiery uh, as, as much as he can while still being himself. That's what he likes about Keaton Slovis. That's Matt Fink in a nutshell. Like he is all passion at all times. And so I think that probably helped give him that edge over Jack Sears for that three spot. We see how it played out. So let's get to what actually happened on the field. Give me your your quarterback eye, your, your analysis, your breakdown of what you saw from Matt Fink in that game. Yeah, the first thing that jumped out, and I kind of touched on it earlier, was just no flinch. I mean, you talk about he was plugged in there, and they're throwing it right away. He's throwing fade balls, and I think specifically with those fade throws, like those are right on the money all game long, giving those guys a chance. Um, and guys that – a lot of those were well covered, but he's putting it in a spot and allowing those guys to make plays. And I was impressed with his mindset. I think there definitely was an element of um, he just was kind of going out there and playing and having kind of being able to relate to that situation, the the mentality at that point of just kind of saying, screw it, I'm going to go out there and just kind of play and what happens, happens. You definitely got to feel that with Matt. And obviously there was a there was that one pick that he would want back. But to me, I, I kind of like the, the aggressive nature of him. I kind of like the fact that He's uh, given his guys a chance to make plays, and I think we saw that with some of those big plays there. But that the, the, the touchdown pass to Amon Ross St. Brown was just Matt Fink to a T. I think you bring the Utah brings interior pressure. You'd, you'd probably want that picked up if you were uh, the offensive line in terms of squeezing that down. Anyways, Matt Fink's able to, to elude it, and he kind of just chucks it up. 
I mean, it was a little bit probably more structured than that, but throws it up to Amon Ross St. Brown and, and gives one of the best receivers in college football a chance to make a play. And I think moving forward, if, if Fink is the guy, you're going to see more of that in terms of, all right, it's one-on-one, or it might be one-on-two, or at least a safety close by, but Fink's going to give those guys a shot. Um, I just was impressed with the mentality, impressed with his ability to operate. Um, I like the fact that when he threw his pick, he was like sprinting off the field. Like he knows the deal. He knows the whole, he can't hang his head. He knows that uh, his team needs him right now. So was impressed with his performance and just impressed with Graham's ability to, I mean, get all three of those guys ready to play football and ready to function. There was no sense of like, oh, this is the backup quarterback. It was no, we're running our machine, running our offense and what happens, happens. Yeah, I, I think I think a, a different night against a different defense. Maybe uh, being as cavalier as he was throwing the ball up like that could hurt him more than the one pick. But I think it's exactly what they needed against Utah because that was a, a, a fulcrum, a pivotal moment when Keaton Slovis goes out and you're just like, okay, we're two plays in. And if they come out flat that first drive, how fired up is Utah? I mean, they, they just kicked off knock the starting quarterback out, and now we've got a quick stop. That whole game can go differently. Instead, Fink drives him down the field, has a 29-yard touchdown past Tyler Vaughn's. Next series has that 31-yard touchdown to Amon Ross St. Brown. If he doesn't come out firing like that and giving his own team confidence and bringing that Coliseum to life that, that hey, nothing's changing here. This is the air raid, and I'm going to run it. I, I think that game could easily have been totally different. I think that was the total tone setter for what happened the rest of the night. And you can see, yeah, you saw Matt uh, after those touchdown passes, getting the whole SC bench fired up. Yeah, you believe it. Any of those guys that are, shoot, there's a lot of guys on that side then that think that they should be playing. That oh, I should be getting my shot. I'm a backup, but I should be playing. And when they see a guy like Matt go in there and do his thing, it livens everyone up. You better believe every older guy that's been on that roster and seen how Matt works and seen how he kind of stuck it out and stayed ready and no complaints. That whole deal. You better believe that makes an impact on those guys leadership-wise and kind of culture and locker room-wise. So, um, no, a, a, a great uh, – as you touched on it, I mean, the beauty of college football and Matt Fink uh, definitely showed definitely showed that uh, the other night. And, and and Graham Harrell loved it. He, he loved that he was that aggressive and that he was that trusting of his receivers. Uh, my favorite quote from Graham after the game was that uh, – I'm not sure he was necessarily reading the defense. He was reading his man sometimes and, and just throwing at the Pittman, and, and it was the right call. Like he, he goes, we had two throws to Pittman in double coverage, yeah. and he came down with it. And, and at, at that point, just finding Pittman was probably the right call regardless of what he was up against. And Pittman ends up, and we'll get into him more, but he ends up catching 10 of, uh, I think, 21 completions, and they had a nice rapport. And I talked to Pittman about it because they were roommates at one point. They are very close friends. They've uh, done a lot of work over the years together in spring ball, off to the side in the offseason. So they had a report, and, uh, and and Pittman said, Matt was just looking over at me and like going, all right, fade, this or that, or, or, giving him a signal. And we asked Pittman, well, and, and Utah didn't pick up on this? And he goes, they probably did, but they still couldn't stop it. <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah, it's funny you talk about that. Like when I was there, so 2016, uh, Fink and, and – uh, and Pitt were like best buds. I remember them always being together. Yeah, I think uh, they were their room, roommates that freshman year. So 
the fact that all these years later when Michael Pittman's now a solidified name and Fink at the time was a forgotten backup quarterback kind of thing for for Fink's coming out party to be paired with Michael Pittman's big night. Uh, sometimes things just make sense, and that was one of them. Well, let's turn it forward to this week and another ranked opponent for USC as they go on the road to Washington. And as of the time you're hearing this podcast, we don't know who the quarterback is going to be. You're probably listening to this Tuesday morning. We're going to find out after practice Tuesday afternoon the latest update on Keaton Slovis. We did talk to Clay Helton on Sunday evening as usual, and at that point he said nothing's changed. He's still on the concussion protocol, and we're taking it day by day. Uh, We asked him if there was a certain number of practices that he thought that Keaton had to get in be able to play this week and he kind of worked around that question and said we're just going to take it day by day both guys have been in the system the same amount of time they they have enough reps and then what's going on uh every indication and 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 as it should be if, if Keaton Slovis is cleared to play he's the quarterback I don't see any reason for a quarterback controversy I think the Matt Fink story is awesome I love that it happened um not that Keaton was hurt, but that that's how the rest of the night played out. It was fun to write about and talk about. I still think Keaton Slovis is on a different tier as a passer. You've seen them both now in a limited sample size, like all of us. Max, how do you compare those two guys as quarterbacks, and, and is there any controversy to you? It's funny hearing you like uh, intro it like that because I hadn't really thought about it that way of like, oh, it's a foregone conclusion, like, oh, if Keaton's healthy, he's the guy. Because to me uh, – it's, it kind of goes with what Clay Helton said about the running backs at times. Like, got to go with the hot hand. And to me, like, it's like, let's just write out this Matt Fink thing until uh, as long as we can. But then to your point, it's a great point. Like, looking ahead, is it worth stirring up a whole third element to this quarterback controversy, like, for down the road? Like, assuming from what we've seen in this offense so far, any quarterback that goes in there is going to have success or at least a level of success. And so right. what happened? What happens if Matt Fink goes in there and plays well against Washington and then you fast forward and plays well against Notre Dame and all these? And then, sure enough, you might be sitting here thinking, well, is Matt Fink the favorite next year? And you got this <laughs> whole deal. So before you introed that whole that this this segment, I was of the camp of you got to play Matt Fink. But to your point about the longevity of this program and in terms of minimizing controversy and all that – it pro- like there's definitely a case to be made of, all right, Keaton is our guy no matter what when he's healthy, and Matt Fink, good story, but he's our backup, and then the writing's on the wall for kind of him to move on after the season just because at this point you, you, you got to go with the, the higher ceiling of the younger guy. So I totally get that. I think that's a delicate, delicate deal because um, – I just I, I think if if a kid's playing well, what what kind of signal does that uh, does that show if you if you don't go with him the next week? But um, to me, I think if it gets to Thursday, it's Monday right now. If it gets to Thursday and Keaton's not totally right, I think to go. I mean, your your biggest concern right now is going and getting a win in Seattle right now. And so if Thursday rolls around and Keaton's not great, let's go with Matt Fink. Um, but if it's if it's Wednesday and we're thinking, all right, he's good, and this concussion deal is kind of behind us, um, I kind of like your argument, to be honest, in terms of the longevity of minimizing a, uh, a quarterback controversy. Well, I have to admit that I definitely sold Matt Fink short before that last game. I did not think he had that in him, and maybe I'm still selling him short. 
But I again, I just think that those two guys are on different planes. I, I think that that Caden Slovis's arm is is just a, a little more consistent, and and you know what you're going to get. And and it's 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 ironic to say this because his last performance was a three interception game, but I I think he's going to throw less balls that are floating up there or or off the mark. I just believe more in his arm. What do you think of them comparing them as passers? Do, do you not see a difference between the two of them? Yeah, I mean, your sample size is a little bit bigger just because you've seen uh, more practices than me. Um, and I, my biggest uh, fallback is like a freshman Matt Fink. But I think your point right there is is spot on in terms of the, the floating balls and kind of leaving, leaving, leaving balls up there. I think we saw versus Utah some of those throw it up there, give your guys a, a, a chance. Those could have easily been picks, not easily, but those could have been picks uh, under a different different scenario, and those will obviously cost you a game. So, in terms of consistency, um, I think I think you probably got to put uh, put that poker chip in uh, in Keaton's camp. But in terms of like like uh, energy and kind of fuel and kind of go out there and just play ball, and this is backyard ball and not really. Uh, not backyard ball because I don't want to sound like it's totally reckless, but there was an element of like kind of flair that Matt Fink brought, was, and, yeah. And, yeah. And, and then especially kind of with his legs and stuff too. If that's if you're if the offensive line isn't necessarily as locked in as you want, but uh, yeah, I think those are definitely where I where I compare him. And obviously ceiling wise, I think Keaton Slovis he's on a trajectory to be a big 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 time high, uh, quarterback if 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 the steps kind of fall in place and. If that's the case for maybe the long term, uh, long term plug of your program, you, you go with him, knowing that hey, it might be equal here for the next month or two, or not equal, but at least comparable. But the long term goal of putting SC back on the map, it's probably with number nine, uh, number nine behind center. Yeah, and I, I don't think that Matt Fink's leaving regardless. I, I think he made his his uh, decision last summer to say, you know what, I want to finish things out at USC. This is where I should be. Or, or, or maybe, though, this, this performance last week uh, emboldens him further to say, you know what, I can do this. I, I just showed I can do this. And if I'm not going to be in the mix next year, I should probably go do this somewhere. Because he's a I lot think, more Yeah, a lot I think more for sure he's transferring. Okay. I'm, yeah, and maybe that's, maybe that's just me having been in that uh, position, but – uh, he he's already a graduate. I think he graduated in spring. Uh, so to me, he was probably out either way. I think to me now, it's instead of it being maybe a Fresno State move, we might now be talking about a I don't know middle of the tier Division One school kind of thing. But that's a conversation probably for a different time. No, that's, that's interesting though. I, I, again, we get so. Uh tunnel vision on, on what we think of a certain thing and I, I really hadn't even considered about him transferring but as I was talking it out there and as you said it yeah he, he has a lot more to sell somebody now that that game tape is is uh, light years beyond anything he could have shown anyone this this last spring so it's possible and if that's the case then it does undermine my point a little bit about the QB depth chart not necessarily needing a 2020 quarterback because you don't want to go in the next year with, with uh, two scholarship quarterbacks. So in that case, maybe you pursue a grad transfer who just wants the opportunity to come to USC knowing he's going to be down the depth chart. Um, something yeah. like that. 
Yeah, and, and those grad transfers, I mean, in terms of like a Garner Minshew signs up to be a backup quarterback at a big-time school, and then sure enough, he's, he's a solid, uh, solid guy for Washington State a year ago, but the grad transfer route's definitely, uh, definitely an option too. Yeah, and everyone knows his story that he was going to go to Alabama just because he wanted to be a coach one day and thought that would be a beneficial experience. Uh, you yeah. you, you got to have more than two scholarship quarterbacks, though. So, so if Matt Fink has now played himself into a transfer candidate again, then that would definitely uh, change a little of what I said earlier and, and up the, the need for uh, another quarterback to come in this year in some format. But I, uh, I, I don't want to speculate about – Keaton's availability because concussions are so sensitive and you just never know. I will just relay an anecdote, though. And when I went and visited with him and his family back in late December and just going through his whole football story and how he got into it, he and his dad were kind of uh, enjoying telling the story how they had to talk Keaton's mom into letting him play, even just to play flag football. She was very reflexively worried about it, like, like a lot of parents are. And then it was just going to be a flag, though. No tackle, just flag. Okay, okay, just flag, just flag. And then it gets to the point where he's really good at that. He's clearly a great athlete, and he wants to play tackle. So they have to, they have to sell her again. And, and the agreement was, okay, but first concussion and you're done. One concussion and you're out. Okay, okay. And then his senior year, he gets a concussion uh, playing for Desert Mountain High School. But by that point, he's already on his way to USC. He already has his bright future laid out. But that, that was a part of the narrative for them uh, in his development. And so maybe there is an inclination to be more cautious. Again, it, it's, it's really not my place to, to make any guesses as to what they're going to do here. But just a little context and an anecdote that I can relay um, from his past. He, I, I saw him after the game. He and his parents walked in the locker room, uh, presumably to talk to Coach Helton. He looked, uh, he looked okay, but it's, it, concussions are tricky. I don't think we fully expected JT to miss the game he did last year, and it just got later in the week and he wasn't cleared. So if Matt Fink goes back out there, we'll see if he can duplicate it. If not, we'll see if Keaton can get back on track. But maybe what you have is a shorter leash for Keaton if he comes out and has another BYU game where he throws two early picks. Maybe they go, well, let's see if Matt Fink can be a little more consistent. Who knows? Yeah, two points there. One with the concussions, I think – and your point about kind of rushing it or patience, I think you have to go full patience in this scenario just because the clock is not ticking on Keaton Slovis whatsoever. I mean, all of this right now is way earlier than anyone thought it'd be. Um, I know he might not have thought that, but still, I mean, it's true freshman year. Um, so I think you have to go patience there. If it was a Matt Fink concussion on the other side, and I know this is a sensitive topic with head injuries, but let's call a spade a spade. And he knew this is kind of his last hurrah at SC. Like, in knowing Matt and how he's wired, you better believe he'd be pushing to get out there. I don't think necessarily Keaton's that dynamic, or that it's that dynamic for, uh, or, uh, yeah, for Keaton. And then uh, you're, uh, I'm blanking on the second point. That's the, that's the problem with not having a pen in front of me. But, uh, yeah, that's, that's, kind of, uh, that's kind of where I net out well, with, uh, uh, with that guy. The, the second point was whether this, this gives a shorter leash for Keaton moving oh, forward. Oh, yeah. Because now they've seen, I, you know, I don't, we don't know that the coaches – uh, truly knew Matt Fink could do this. I mean, uh, they had some degree of confidence, but until you see it, how do you know? And, and now they've seen something that they, they can fall back on. And then if Keegan goes out there and, and throws two early picks and is not going through his progressions, at what point uh, is, is that leash pretty short? And, and they go, let's see what Fink can do. 
My two cents on that is I think Matt Fink would have a much shorter leash than Keaton would because I, I think if you're a coach, you don't want to set a precedent for the rest of Keaton's career that if he has two bad quarters in a row, he's benched and he starts overthinking and he starts maybe second-guessing himself. Like That's not the precedent you want to set necessarily. So I think Keaton would have a longer leash, but your point is fair, and we've seen it with Shoot, we've seen it with Mike Leach, and not to keep bringing up Washington State references, but I remember Luke Falk. He probably benched Luke Falk like three or four times during Luke Falk's career up uh, up at Washington State, and it was just kind of like, hey, he had a bad half. Let's go see what the other guy can do in there, and then he kind of would like eventually get back to him event- uh, at some point. Now Luke's obviously starting for the Jets while Darnold's down, but um, yeah, I think it's a, it's a different strategy. Each coach has its own deal, but I think uh, – Knowing Clay like I do, I do not think he wants to set a precedent of a of a short le- leash deal. But I obviously obviously this dynamics different in the fact you have three quarterbacks on a roster that all have produced uh, in, in in great capacity. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right. I think Clay's history shows, and even his comments that he's made about he doesn't want his quarterback looking over his shoulder. I, I think if Keaton's healthy, he's the guy. Uh, they ride with him and. Just to reiterate, that's what I would do. I, I don't see any quarterback controversy here. Uh, definitely, definitely undervalued Matt Fink. Was very pleasantly surprised. Very happy for him. But I, I, I think Keaton's your guy as long as he's available. And and we'll see what that determination becomes this week. Let's get into the X's and O's a little further. And I, I, kind of break down for me how you thought Utah tried to defend USC. And, and how that compared to what we saw BYU do or, or the approaches we've seen to this point in the season. Yeah, so that was one of the more fascinating elements um, we kind of talked about last week. I wasn't sure how it was going to play out. We talked about it in the pregame show when I was on there with, uh, with Sean Cody in terms of what element does Utah bring to the park because Utah, and it's funny saying this now because they just got torched, but Utah has a great secondary. All, they have two NFL, their safety is going to play in the NFL, and then Jalen Johnson, who got torched, he's an NFL prospect, a very good one. And so, to me, the dynamic was, all right, uh, Utah's going to turn on a film and see BYU have tons of success in zone defense. Do they bring zone to the park, or does Utah kind of stick with what they do and let's bring some blitzes and put our corners on islands and play man? That's Stanford did the man route. BYU did the zone route. I thought going into the game, Utah was going to do a combination of both in that, all right, we're a man team. We're going to have principles there, but we'd also be crazy if we didn't copy some of the things BYU did, and that's what we saw. I think we did see um, Utah get torched in those man-to-man, uh, in those man-to-man scenarios, which is a testament to what Tyler Vaughns does and what Michael Pittman does. I thought I thought another interesting element was Jalen Johnson, their best corner, was on Tyler Vaughn's most of the night rather than Michael Pittman, which I don't know yeah. if that was necessarily a the other corner. I'm blank uh, out the other corner opposite of Jalen Johnson. He maybe he was more physical, and you're trying to put him on Michael Pittman. But I just thought that dynamic was was odd because I think when you when you talk about the SC receivers, Tyler Vaughn's is a great, great receiver, but he usually kinda comes in that third he's usually mm-hmm. the third name you kinda you kinda list. So yep. I thought that was and not that's no slight against him. He, he's gonna have a very successful he had a successful career, will have a successful career. But uh, I thought that dynamic was interesting. But by and large SC made him pay. And I think those three blueprints of week two Stanford, week three BYU and then week four Utah Every team SC plays from here on out will take 
one one of those blueprints to the park every single week. I think there's only so much innovation you can do with an air raid. And so uh, it'll be fun in the coming weeks to say, oh, we played Notre Dame and they brought the Utah blueprint or we played Arizona State and they brought the Stanford blueprint. That kind of thing will be uh, will be funny to tra- will be uh, fun and funny to track uh, over the course of the year. You could tell after the game that Graham Harrell was kind of proud that they got Utah out of their their man plan pretty quickly. Um, he made yep. a reference a couple times that they came out man the first two series, and then we didn't see it again. We, 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 and if you go man against us, that's what we're going to do. And uh, he really likes that matchup. If, if they get man coverage, if they get one-on-one matchups, even if they get Pittman two-on-one, they just trust those receivers so much. Let's talk about Michael Pittman, who I would have said – in the spring, in the summer, that he's one of the best receivers in college football. I think I have said that, so this is not uh, revisionist history. But hopefully a lot of other people nationally are saying that now after seeing that performance. Ten catches, 232 yards, one touchdown. He hauled down 10 of 11 targets. He had almost half of Fink's completions. He had – it was the fifth um, most receiving yards in a single game – in USC history. It was the most since Marquise Lee uh, a, a while ago. It was it was just phenomenal. He had the 77-yard touchdown in the third quarter uh, between two defenders where he caught it and created space and ran in. It, it was a really pivotal score. It was just – it was peak Pittman. What impressed you most about what he did on that field Friday night? Yeah, just high point in those balls. I mean, I think uh... – Yeah. I mean, he's so physical and so big, which, like, you can say that about a lot of guys, right? There's there's big receivers around the country, but for Pitt to really use that that strength, and we saw it bits and pieces against BYU, but like we got the full showcase on Saturday, and I think it'll be it'll, it's it's awesome to see kind of the trajectory he's on because um, I, I looked at some draft boards uh, for this upcoming NFL draft uh, last week, and I think Pitt's in like the 15 to 20 range in terms of uh, draft eligible or draft kind of projected draft receivers this upcoming year. Obviously, if he, uh, if he keeps having performances like that, he'll move up. But I think what's fun is Michael Pittman has intangibles too. He is a great dude. He is an extremely hard worker. He was, yeah. pro- he was the only – from 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 my sources and my in my knowledge, he was the only surefire captain on this team in terms yep. of leadership qualities and kind of what he brought to the table there. So teams are going to fall in love with this guy. He's great at blocking. Like you have big receivers, but they don't always use their size. I guess is the biggest point I'm saying. And Michael Pittman, he's using every ounce of that. I think he loves contact. You can see how physical he is. There's no sense of. Uh, prima donna ness with him so none none yeah. um none at all so i mean he's he's a great great receiver and i think it's when you step back big picture with this sc offense man he compliments kind of what everyone else has going on he talked about vaughn's as kind of this smooth crafty guy and then uh amon ross st brown is just like your your premier slot receiver and then you got the the big physical guy out wide so pump for pit and i don't think i don't see this thing uh slowing down anytime soon yeah, well, uh, you know, back in the spring, uh, Graham Harrell's first glimpse of them, he, he talked about Amon Ra and, and Pittman just like setting a new standard for what he expected from the position. And just he was blown away by their approach and their work ethic and how, how they were just so relentless every day and didn't need any pushing. Uh, Pittman's a supremely confident guy, and 
yet what I liked is last season when things were up and down week to week and there were weeks where you knew that they just didn't fully maximize him. You never saw it on his face that it was about him or his stat line. Yeah, you, you never felt that, and I'm I'm so happy that he's finally seeing the the volume of targets and the numbers that he should. He has he has 25 catches over the last 10 quarters. So he had no targets in the first half against Stanford. Slovis's first start, and since then, and the rest of that game, the next two games, 25 catches, a ton of yards, three touchdowns. If those draft projections that that you saw that, that that to me is is way too low for him. I I was in the minority where I thought he, he was a draft ready player coming off of last season. That's because I, I saw him every day, and, and you know it would be different if you were just swooping in to evaluate him and his stats weren't overwhelming and and there were quiet games. But I, I could just see this was was boiling uh, below the surface that he was this kind of player, and. Any talent evaluator who's watching him has to be sliding him up their board every week. I think he's a bona fide All-American candidate, and we'll see how the rest of the season goes. And and, and the targets are going to vary week to week. You know, there's going to be a week where Vaughn's is the number one guy or St. Brown. But I think at this point, there's not a better play in this offense than just giving Michael Pittman a chance. Just give him a chance. And, and I think in the worst-case scenario, he has the savvy and the unselfishness to uh, play defense if he can't catch the ball. I, I don't think he's going to allow a pass to him to be picked off. Yeah, and you talk about unselfishness. Just sitting here kind of thinking about Michael Pittman's like career trajectory at SC. Like He started out as like kind of a Swiss Army Knife special teams player for John Baxter. And I remember when I was on the team, he was like our go-to punt blocker, like off the edge, like big, physical, fast guy. And I remember he got in there a lot. He's had a few block punts in his career, but like big special teams guy when maybe he was sitting behind a Darius Rogers or sitting behind a Juju or wasn't get the full workload that some of these other guys were. And then to see that unselfishness and just like you talked about, excitement for when other things are happening to other people, not getting down when things were negative, but just kind of staying the course, to do, seeing that and then to now seeing it all come to fruition and him really putting up stats and tangible numbers, um, yeah, happy for him. It's, it's awesome, especially because like last year in Amon Ross St. Brown got a lot of uh, a lot of pub, and rightfully so, great, great player, but you forget like, oh, man, Number six out there is an absolute beast and uh, zero ego. So, no, he, he's a weapon for sure. Well, I want to hit two more points here. And we talk so much about Clay Helton and his job status. And when I say we, I include myself in that because I, I definitely make a note of it all the time. I, I like to think I'm not driving that narrative, but it's you can't not acknowledge it. It's, it's, it's the, it is the narrative of this season. It's around every week. It, it was all you heard coming off the BYU game. And he walks into the Coliseum last Friday night with the awkwardness of Urban Meyer sitting on the field uh, analyzing his game when everyone in the fan base is, is saying, Urban Meyer's our next coach. And, you know, it's, it's just I, – I know that Clay was not thinking about that, but it just was kind of a metaphor for everything that he's dealing with. And to go out and beat a top 10 ranked team with your third string quarterback when you absolutely had to have it for your season and for himself, that has to be one of the more impressive wins in his time here. Not necessarily in terms of raw stakes, but in terms of 
the full picture, how pivotal it was, what the alternative could have meant. It was a really big win for him that he had to deliver, and he did. And I, I, I think it should buy him a little time here to see what he can do with this team. Totally. And I made this point in the postgame show, but there's a lot of coaches that were on their couch Friday night seeing a third-string quarterback go in and, like, cringing and having nightmares that, like, they might have to play their third-string quarterback. Like, there's – the amount of third-string quarterbacks that can go in there and, and play, like, and, and have success is – there. there's not many. But your point's kind of spot on in terms of every week. Um, you, we're going to be talking about this, I think – it's kind of funny, for lack of a better term, that after the Stanford week, it felt like the seat was incredibly cool for, for Clay Helton. Then after the BYU week, it's incredibly hot. And then now it's cooled back down. I think you look forward to these next two games. I know we got a Thursday podcast, so we'll get into it then. But uh, two huge tests, and I think you can kind of play out the scenarios in your mind. I think at the end of the day, they have to show up well. And either, and, I mean, you're playing two great programs, two, uh, yeah, two great programs, two elite programs. So these next two games will be very telling. But right now, I think it's just a matter of uh, the analogy I've been using is <laughs> what side of the bed will this USC team wake up on? Will it be the side of the bed, the BYU side, where it's whatever that was in terms of getting, right. getting, beat, getting beat up front and interceptions and, and, and that? Or is it the Utah game and the Stanford game where they're setting the tone up front. And maybe the answer there is uh, home game versus road game. And this Washington this Washington test will be on the road and it'll be a, a big-time test for this team. But, uh, yeah, I think this will be a weekly uh, conversation, the, the head coach – uh, how, how the temperature of the head coach seat. But then again, I said the weekly conversation last week was going to be the running back position, and we haven't even touched on that today. So <laughs> who knows? I guess anything's up in the air. I, I was going to make note that we are going to go uh, this entire podcast without debating Marquis Steph. So <laughs> I, 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 I just, I'm, I'm saying it right now. We're leaving that one alone today. I did write about it after the game if you want to read, read about it, but we're not going to debate it. <laughs> um, I, I, I I want to have the reputation here, though, of I'm, I'm willing to own a bad opinion. And I, I was in, in the crowd that was uh, wondering why they were dividing quarterback reps so deep into the preseason when it was, seemed clear to everybody else that JT was the guy. And wouldn't you want him to get as many reps as possible leading up to that first game? Well, you look back on that and all those reps and experience that Matt Fink got, that Keaton Slovis got, but especially that Matt Fink got as the number three guy, well, that, that seems pretty valuable when he comes in and, and looks comfortable and looks totally uh, in sync with the offense and what they're doing. Totally. And I would definitely be in that camp as well, uh, the camp you were in preseason. of If you know your guy, got to go with him. Um, but, yeah, it's just a testament to this offense. It really just feels like they're all being able to they're, – they're all able to find easy throws. They're all able, able to just go out there and operate without thinking. Um, so it's a testament to Graham. But – yeah, it's cool for a guy like me to look back on – I saw Matt Fink as a freshman when he had that long hair that was not the best of looks. He probably would tell you that now. <laughs> but then just to think about that Matt Fink to, like, where he is now and the fact that he was, like, the leadership guy that kind of came in to save the day, um, I think every SC fan can, uh, can, can, can do nothing but kind of sing his praises. And in the coming weeks, man, it'll be interesting. And whoever has to sit on the bench, whether it's Matt Fink um, or a Keaton Slovis – it's a quality quarterback that has a proven track record of success that's sitting on the bench, which is good for depth, but uh, makes for an interesting dynamic, and it'll be good to, good to talk about or fun to talk about for, for guys like us. 
Yeah, for sure. And and, and to reiterate, I made this at the top of the podcast. Uh, I'm, I'm also going to acknowledge that I had the wrong opinion last week on on Clay's uh, bold confidence coming off that BYU game. He backed it up. Now we'll see what he does the rest of the season. I thought it was premature. Well, it wasn't because it, it maybe that's what he thought that team needed was to hear it publicly as well as privately. Whatever it was, it worked. They backed it up. So kudos to Clay Helton for that. Give credit where credit's due. We got to run, but I'm just going to get one quick thought on this, and, and we're going to touch on the defense a lot more in the in the Friday podcast because this was clearly an offensive podcast. But I have one defensive thought. I just want to see if you agree with me. I think that maybe what we saw Friday night is the identity of this defense, where they are going to have breakdowns. They're going to struggle to tackle. They're going to have uh, back-breaking third-down bust. But they're going to be also opportunistic and make big plays and make forced fumbles and, and, and make – you know, third down stands, fourth down stands. I think that's who they are. I think they have the capability to make those plays, but not the discipline or or maybe the the technique to be consistent tacklers and consistently stout. I think maybe that's just what we see. I agree with you. I think I would word it like maybe my 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 wording of that would be I think all eleven guys on that defense, they all have are wired to to make the big play and be the guy that makes the game changing play. And there's two sides of that. There's the side you said where it's opportunistic and you're creating turnovers and there's strip sacks and, and that kind of thing. And then there's the other side where you might be diving for a sack at a guy's ankle and then the, a dual threat quarterback kind of gets out and makes a play. Or you might be yeah. diving to kind of tackle a running back and then it's a it's an arm tackle and he kind of any 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 he escapes the tackle. So I think I agree with the with the logic uh, of what you're saying. I think I, I worded it a little bit different, but I'm sp- I'm, I'm right with you in terms of. Uh, this defense is going to be a, a, a bend but don't break defense, and some weeks it's going to be awesome, and you're going to be sitting there saying, "Man, we made we uh, stopped the Utah team three times in the fringe red zone, which is awesome." If you're a uh, an SC fan, and there might be weeks where, hey, it got away from us, and we wish we would have tackled better against a BYU squad. So, positives and negatives to both, but uh, I like the performance of the defense last week. Exactly. And see, this is why we have two podcasts a week, because there's clearly just too much to talk about with this team and this program <laughs> at all times. So for those who have been loyally listening, we thank you. For those who are just catching on now, great. Join in. Every Tuesday morning, we had the podcast posted with me and Max breaking down the previous game and the storylines, as we just did. And every Friday morning, we had the podcast previewing the upcoming opponent and the storylines that developed through the week. And like I said, we'll hit the defense much more heavily in the Friday podcast as we get you ready for Washington. Also, as always, get on the Trojan Talk message board on Thursday evenings for our uh, Q&A, our live chat with Max, where he comes in and answers all your questions. So if there's things that we don't get to on the podcast, you're like, like Ryan, why do you get Max to take on this? You have your chance. It's, it's, it's your forum to – to chat with him, to get his analyst eye, his quarterback eye on anything that interests you. Um, we've had great chats so far. I love the range of questions we get every week. So that's every Thursday night. Uh, we post the the time early in the day. It's, it's usually around 5 or 6 o'clock, um, but it's easy to find. you got to be subscribed, though. So join Trojansports.com. This could be a very interesting season moving forward. This is a good time to hop on board both for recruiting coverage, for team coverage, and for everything that Max brings to us as our Trojan sports analyst. Max, thank you. It was fun, Ryan. See you next time.